Okay. Yeah. So because we don't have a great deal of time, um, I'm going to first speak in general terms about Truett and her work in this room. And then maybe in each gallery, we will look at maybe one work. And that should lead us through the exhibition. I first of all want to uh, thank the Hirschhorn for uh, inviting me to, to be here and to uh, acknowledge just the beautiful work that the curator, Kristen Heilman, and the excellent team at the Hirschhorn uh, have done to put up this exhibition. Um, I've seen many Truett shows, and I have installed Truett's work myself. Um, and this is the best installation of her work I have seen. And um, one of the limitations of the installation, because the work is fragile, and often gets pushed over when it's right on the floor. That happened when I put up the work. One of the limitations is now it's on a pedestal, a low plinth, and that protects the work, which I'm all for. But it means, first of all, that you can't always walk behind, which is very crucial in Truett, and also that they are raised slightly up. And one of the pleasures of Truett's sculpture is to be able to look on, over the tops, which you can do over many works. So just think that the tops are part of the work, too. Um, now, the reception of this show so far has been a bit disappointing. I don't know if you've been reading the, uh, you want more noise, more sound. The reception of the show has been somewhat disappointing. Um, so far, the journalistic account, the representation of Truett in the press, has focused on her biography, on Truett the person. Truett, the personality, her life story. Um, and this is very deleterious, I think, in many ways. First of all, Truett is being presented to us um, as a woman artist. Again and again and again, she gets presented first and foremost as uh, a female artist. And I think we need to interrogate that construction of Truett. Um, the Washington Post published an article um, recently. The title was, A Dutiful Wife Who Sculpted Her Own Identity. And I found this really offensive. Um, you know, in 1968, the poll quote in an article about Truett in Vogue by the very famous critic Clement Greenberg described her as the gentle wife of James Truett. And here we are in 2009, and she's a dutiful wife. So nothing has changed in 40 years. I find this very distressing on many levels. But I find it distressing as somebody who knew Truett well and knew that she really wanted her work to be seen for her work. If you look at this picture of Truett in the catalog, here she is in her studio in 1964. The studio is in a little street called Twining Court off P Street, which you can go see. It's in an old carriage house. That carriage house had no heat. It had rats. It was really a very unpleasant place. And yet she went there every day to make her work um, as a mother of three young children. So there was nothing dutiful uh, about Anne Truitt. Now, let's talk about Truitt's work. The issue of her biography is particularly of concern, uh, not just in terms of thinking about the way gender becomes a simplistic frame in thinking about a woman artist's work, but also her work is about, in some way, in some sense, her life, her history, her memories. So her life, if you will, is in the work in some way. But the question is, is what, what form does she give to um, the experiences uh, she had. How does her work encapsulate meaning, subject matter, a subject matter drawn from life? How does it do that? That's the really interesting question. How does her work give life, or her life, or her experience a form? In my essay, I talk about various aspects of Truett's work, which I will enumerate here, and I will add a few others today. One is the question of subject matter. That's principle number one. Truett's work does have a subject matter. It's abstract art, but it has a subject matter. Um, now, she's hardly new in wanting her abstract art to be uh, an art with subject matter. This is the old problem of abstract art going back to Malevich, 
and to Mondrian and Rothko. Um, so many of the great abstract artists uh, made abstraction to embody a subject matter, a content. So in this regard, Truett is very much part of the tradition of 20th century abstraction. But the way she's doing it is very unique, it seems to me. She is redacting or simplifying her forms in a very um, dramatic way that comes to be called minimal art. And she's making minimal art, if you want to call it that, at the very same moment that Judd and Andrea and the others are making their work. So she's absolutely contemporaneous. But the work of Judd, for example, the ambition, as you know, is to purge itself of subject matter. He didn't want his work to have a subject matter. The subject matter in Judd is the form, the materiality, the structure. So this makes Truett very different from some of the other so-called minimalists. She reduces to infuse her work with meaning, right? And she reduces in order to dilate or expand the meaning. So you understand that simplification, redaction, abstraction, reducing your work to the, the least amount of variables is a way of opening up the subject matter. And that is why this representation of Truett as a wife or whatever is particularly offensive because her work is opening up the possibility of meaning, not shutting it down. These are not one-to-one -one correspondences of her life and her art object. On the contrary, the art object um, comes out of a, a life, out of a situation perhaps observed, but it opens up through abstraction, through a lack of specific reference, as much meaning as that abstract work can contain. She called this the maximum. She wanted her work to be maximum. She said she wanted to make the maximum amount of meaning in the least or simplest or most minimal form. So think of that. The work dilates the possibility of meaning in the simplest possible form. So there's a very powerful relationship between subject matter and form, between so-called minimalism and meaning in Truett's art. So that's point one. Point two, geometry. Geometry is a really interesting concept for Truett. Geometry. And that's, of course, related to abstraction. She's not making abstract art with lots of variables or with curves and biomorphic references. It's geometric art. Geometry interested Truett greatly. First of all, geometry has a cartographical meaning for Truett. Cartographical. Geometry for Truett, first of all, refers to charts, to plans, to um, a town, the way a town is organized. And she describes the importance as a child of getting on a bicycle, which is the name of my piece, and riding around her town and looking at the buildings and the people. And she says that her earliest sculpture, which we have right here, First and Southern Elegy, are efforts to recall those memories of being on a bicycle, driving around that town as a child. But she came to understand the town and the structure of existence, if you will, through geometry, through the sense that that's where this person lives, that where that, that's where that thing is, this is behind us, this is in front of us. Geometry for her is cartographical. It's about a town. It's about a body walking down a street and experiencing shapes. It is also, as you see, architectural. Uh, geometry alludes to the facades of buildings. And a lot of these structures are very much based, if you will, on the experience of standing in front of buildings as a child, looking up and uh, feeling these things hover over you. See, geometry has many meanings for Truett. Cartographical, facade of building. It's a very interesting concept for her work. Another issue for Truett, it seems to me, is what I call narrative, and the question of a narrative sculpture. She wanted to work to have as much meaning as possible, as I said, and she called this a narrative sculpture, Ultimately, she will produce a sculpture that produces a narrative, a sculpture that you walk around 
and take in, in its different sides and points of view, and you put those different sides and points of view in your mind and try to remember them as you walk around and around the work and take in as much of its colors and meanings and allusions as you can. That she calls narrative sculpture. Initially, her sculpture is frontal, recto and verso, front and back. And this is what sculpture was in the 50s. This is what David Smith, her friend David Smith, was producing, was a sculpture of front and back, of recto and verso. The tradition of modernist sculpture, as you know, goes back to cubist collage, to cubist assemblage. It is a frontal tradition of sculpture, a pictorial tradition. And indeed, these early works are pretty pictorial. But even in these early pictorial works, she's trying to narrativize or expand or dilate the meaning of the works through um, a semanticization of front and back. The backs are as meaningful as the fronts. And as we move forward, you'll see that we're going to walk around and around the works that ultimately the front and back, recto and verso, is not sufficient for Truitt. She wants a fully narrative, fully three-dimensional, 360 degrees perception. One other issue in Truitt that's worth talking about is her process. How did she make these things? How did she make them? First of all, uh, that very first sculpture, first from November of 61, she had the slats uh, carved in a workshop in Georgetown and she glued the work together herself. That's the one sculpture she built. But then she starts to have the armatures, as she calls them, fabricated and her work will be coming up with the form, first of all, its dimensions, its contours, and secondly, painting it. The painting is her work. And her painting process is very complicated. Initially, it's not. In first, you have white latex house paint covering that surface. And it's a rather nice, but frankly, um, sort of basic painted surface. Ultimately, in her later sculptures, she will use acrylic paint, not house paint. Actually, that's happening already in these and she starts to sand between the surfaces. These works do not have sanding between surfaces. She painted them. But ultimately, you'll see the color will get more and more luminous, and that is the production of sanding, sometimes 20 coats of paint. She would sand off the color, and then add another color, and then add another color, and then sand again, until she got the kind of luminosity that she wanted for her sculpture. And that luminosity of color is in the service of narrativity. It's a color, ultimately, that floats, that produces many points of view, that leads your body around the work, that is not an inert or flat or boring color, but a luminous narrative color. Last but not least, there's an issue in Truett of edge. I want to throw out edge. Edge has a lot of meanings for Truett. It is, first of all, a formal meaning, the edge of a form. Where do you cut a work off? How far do you extend it? A choice that any sculptor will make. But it has a metaphorical meaning for Truett. Edge, edge, the point at which things are visible or not visible. The point at which we know things, come to see or understand things, or don't see things. Her second book of writings, and they're wonderful books if you've read them, is called Turn. And that book is about the point at which she realized she was getting older and she couldn't drive as far as she used to. That is a turn, uh, an edge in life for Truett. So edge has many meanings for Truett. It's formal, it's perceptual, and it is metaphorical. It's the edge between things. And I think you'll see that her work stages edge a lot. So those are some of the issues I put out for you to think about as we walk through the show. Let me show you that first, that very first sculpture. Right here. You need to walk around it because the back is as interesting as the front. The back of the sculpture, you'll see there are these slats and then there's this other beam, this other back block beam. And that other beam is not 
really structural. She didn't need to put that block there to hold the thing up. It is there deliberately. It is an aesthetic formal choice. And what that does, that second beam, and then those horizontal slats, what they do is they add another layer of meaning, of reference to Truitt's little fence. You think you're just seeing one fence, a picket fence, one meaning. Picket fence. It's much more complex than that. First of all, it has a back, and that back is a different type of fence. It's a crossbeam fence is being suggested, is being evoked. So two types of fences in one piece. Recto and verso are being enlisted, staged in a way to make this a more complex sculpture than any old straightforward looking fence. Now look at the tops, the three pickets. I just assumed that they're all the same. That's what I thought. And then I went to look at the work in the Baltimore Museum. They are each discrete, different tops. They are not the same. This one is symmetrical in the middle, and these other two are off-axis. Do you see that they're, they're oblique angles? And those angles, you could say, evoke the roofs of the town of Easton, Maryland, where she grew up, the buildings that she observed as she went around the town and took it in as a child. The roof of her family house had that type of pitch, and the Quaker Meeting House in Easton, Maryland has that pitched roof. You see? so. so these little pickets, if you will, are evoking also roofs. So the whole town, if you will, is being evoked in this simple little sculpture, a whole town. So now do you see what I meant by dilation of meaning, as much meaning as possible for a simple form? Of course, first, her first sculpture, and it's actually not the first, but it's the first one she considered her mature work. First is, of course, referential, it's mimetic, it looks like a fence. As does Southern Elegy, from 62, slightly afterwards. These are her only sculptures that will have a mimetic resemblance to things in the world. Soon enough, she moves toward geometry, toward abstraction in the form of ge geometry. And you get a work like Platt, this column over here, which is a very significant work. It was in her first one-person show in New York at 63, the show that really put her work on the map. And it is a work that is not recto and verso, that is not front and back. It's a column, and it enlists you to walk around it to take in its different sides. The other interesting thing about this work is the way the color, the forest green color, a color that for her evoked perhaps the shutters of the town of Easton, only goes to a certain point. It stops short of the actual literal box groove. Do you see that? It stops short of that. And that means she's making a compositional choice. She's choosing to bring the color down only so far and not all the way. Works like that very much troubled Donald Judd. He reviewed that show, and he liked works like Seven, which you see on the right, or didn't like them really, but thought they were better, because the color conformed to shape. And if you look at Donald Judd's work, the color always conforms to the surface. They are inextricable. The color does not exceed the surface. It is one with surface. They are congruent. In Truitt, however, in a work like Platt, color and shape are being rearranged composed, adjusted, according to what she feels the subject matter needs to be represented. She is composing. And that makes her very different from a minimalist artist like Judd, who is trying to purge his work of subjectivity, subject matter, compositional decisions. Let's move forward. This question of edge is very much staged, it seems to me as well as the question of architecture, of brooding shapes, architectural shapes, facades that hover over one. In these drawings from 62, they're from November of 62, and it's one of her great months, is November of 62. She does these incredible fine line drawings, as she called them, that you can barely see. Do you see these drawings that you can barely see that evoke perhaps rooftops or structures on the other hand, she's making these very dense 
um, Richard Serra a very dense acrylic-like shapes. In the same month, she's thinking about shape as something very solid and shape as something negative, an absence. Both works stage this question of edge, of what is visible, what we can see, what is it that we see. That's what these works, it seems to me, are evoking. And she made them in a little boarding house. She rented a room in Georgetown, across the street from her house. Um, she just got this room and made these drawings. That doesn't sound dutiful to me. So here we are in 1962, 1963, and Truitt Truitt has now taken that um, studio I alluded to off P Street, and it's uh, she's going there and making these works quite privately, quite secretly, if you will. Um, the work that really impressed the critic Clement Greenberg, who would write essays about her work, was in particular the work Hardcastle, uh, that work in the back. And that work is, again, a fascinating um, staging of front and back, and putting a lot of pressure on what's the difference between a front and a back. Um, the red struts that hold it up are now as powerful and as as important for the sculpture as the very uh, dark facade-like front. Hardcastle, uh, she confessed, uh, was a work that alluded to somebody who was in a car and driving on a train track or across a train track and who was uh, killed by a moving train. The train came right at him. And she heard about this as a very small child and it was a very terrifying memory. So you could say, okay, this work is quote-unquote about this poor guy getting uh, run over by a train. But then when you investigate the situation more, you learn that actually there were several hard castles living in Easton in this town, um, that they were friends with this family, that perhaps there is more to this sculpture than one incident, one narrative. There might be other narratives for the work. It's abstract and it leaves that open for a viewer. In a work like New England Legacy, do you see that work? I think she's really trying to make the sides as important as the front and back. You could say this is like a little tower, a little skyscraper, if you will. And where is the front and where is the back in this sculpture? The sides are now wide and really interesting formally and are as much a part of the work as the front. And now it seems to me this three-dimensional uh, experimentation that we saw in Platt, that column, or in a work like Odo Skelke over here, this early column. Now she is really encouraging you to walk around the work, not just from front to back. And this is a real break, it seems to me, with so much of the sculpture of the period of David Smith. And it really puts her in the realm of the minimalists, who also at the same time were making a sculpture to walk around, or in Carl Andre's case, to walk on. And sculpture that was being put right on the floor. That too is another decision she's making. Do you remember how in the earlier, very earliest works, there are those little plinths? She called them fields, little pedestals. These works are pedestal-less. They lack a field. They're now being put right on the floor. And that, too, encourages a circumambulation of the body. It, it really uh, is in interesting us to walk around the work. And this is something she very much shares with the other so-called minimalists, is this purging of the pedestal from the sculpture. So here we are now in the late 60s. In the late 60s is really the point at which Truitt's work pulls all these different ingredients together that we alluded to. Um, they are now, of course, columnar. Um, they encourage you to walk around them. The color is now that luminous, 
um, color that she wanted. She called it filmic color, a color that you can almost see through, but that reminds you that it is on a surface, the product of many, many layers of sanding and painting and sanding. A color also that is increasingly high-keyed, high-keyed, pastel, um, a color that is perhaps more in the world of an artist like Kenneth Noland, the Washington color field, so-called color field painters. She was, of course, very close to Kenneth Noland. And think of his beautiful, luminous pastels and rich colors. I think there's a whole essay to be written about Noland and Truitt and their color. As well, note how not only has she gotten rid of the field in these sculptures, she's now raising them up. They are raised up maybe a quarter of inch. There is a, a little platform underneath them that raises them up. She is producing an effect that we might call a floating, if you will. Um, it was the suggestion of an art dealer called René Drouin. He said, well, why don't you, uh, you know, raise them up a little? Um, that might you know, get them off the floor. And she liked his idea. And so she incorporates that in the work. Underneath the sculpture, she has painted them the color of the lowest register so that there is a kind of luminosity. There's a bit of that yellow mixed with the shadow below. As well, every one of these columns has a hole underneath that you can't see around, hole in the wood, that allows them to breathe, as she would put it, that allows the wood to um, settle and not crack. Many of her early sculptures did crack. Uh, the wood didn't last. She would repair them. She's now figuring out not just a form that's best for her work, but also a form that will protect her work. Um, these holes underneath the wooden bottom uh, that is lifted up will also allow these works to last longer. This work is called A Wall for Apricots, and she recalled that it spoke to a, a parlor game, uh, a game that was played by her and some friends one evening at a house. And uh, one of the guests, um, one of the guests, uh, her three favorite things were apricots, white walls. She was an artist, so she liked white walls. And then Anne Truitt could not remember the third thing her friend liked, her third favorite thing. But this piece seems to me to really demonstrate how open the meanings of a Truitt sculpture really are. A wall for apricots. Is that the color of a, an apricot, sort of, but not exactly? Is that a white wall? It's actually gray. So she's making adjustments, first of all, in terms of the color that would figure that meaning. There's not going to be necessarily a one-to-one -one correspondence between the reference and the color in the final work. Secondly, um, what are we remembering? In the, or what is she remembering in this sculpture? Is she remembering that evening? Is she remembering the friend? Uh, what exactly is being embodied in the sculpture? That's kind of open. That's open for us to imagine. And the last thing I would say about Truett's subject matter is that we can never really know the subject matter. It is ultimately mysterious. We were not there for that game. We did not know the friend. Truett's work, it seems to me, is asking each of us to account for our experiences. We may not all be artists like Anne Truett, but she's, I think one of the implications of her work is to say, account for your experience, your memories, your history. She has hers, she gives it a form. We can't quite ever access that memory. She's, I think, suggesting to each of us to account for our experience in our lives. That, to me, is a lesson of Truett's work, too. Now, the whole question of Truett's color becoming more luminous, more high-keyed, as the 60s moves into the 70s, is a really interesting one. 
I suggested, first of all, that her process has changed in terms of sanding and evoking a filmic, luminous color. I suggested that there might be a dialogue with Kenneth Nolan's work and his with hers. But one other factor we need to consider is that during the mid-1960s, James Truitt, her husband, and she and her family moved to Japan. They moved to Japan because he was posted as the, uh, a journalist in Tokyo. That was his post, so she had to move to Japan. She writes very interestingly about Japan in her journals. She says, first of all, that it was a disaster, that it was not her place, that she did not feel at home there, that cartographically she was confused. She couldn't figure Tokyo out. And it was the wrong place, that Washington was the right place, and that her work didn't look good there in that light, and that she couldn't make it there. Her whole account of it is it was a failure, and she had m almost all of the works that she made in Japan destroyed. Now, those works were made out of metal, not her customary wood. And she would, of course, return to wood as the wall for apricots made after Japan. All these works were made after Japan confirmed. She would go back to wood. However, she makes a lot of works in metal. And it seems to me that the metal allows her to think about form in fresh ways, ways that she had not before. The metal is ductile, it can be shaped, and several of her metal sculptures are these funny, funny shapes, kind of zigzag shapes on the floor, sheets of metal, um, or low works that kind of go up and down asymmetrically. She's really, because she's using metal, able to experiment with shape, with literal shape, the shape of the sculpture, in a way she had not before, asymmetry, uh, you know, folding forms. Secondly, that allows her to experiment with color because she's painting metal. It's going to have a different surface, a different kind of luminosity, and she's thinking about the interaction of shape and color, it seems to me, in fresh ways. And these are just a few of a treasure of drawings that she made in Japan at that time, where you really see her working with asymmetry, with um, uh, experimenting with shape and color in ways she had not before. And it seems to me that even if Japan was, if, as Truett insists, a disaster, even if she just destroyed the work she made there, that she learned something from her time there about how to experiment with that relationship of color and shape. It freed her up. And this work from the late 70s, I think is a nice example uh, to put with the Japanese uh, acrylic paintings, because now you're really seeing a very complex composition many colors um, being placed on these different surfaces, extraordinary luminosity, a bending, a bendingness of shape. And people have been pointing this out, is the way that Truett's corners, her edges, her literal edges, um, in a way become uh, pictorial, become flat or bending in ways that are optically very interesting become as much a part of the work as the facade, as the actual surface. The corners and the surface are all ingredients in the work. And now we really have a work that really we want to walk around a lot. We want to walk around this work, I think, more than Platt, that early column, where it was the same composition on every side. Now we really keep on walking around, and we can't possibly remember every surface, every corner, it's getting very complicated. So here that ratio of minimum and maximum of simplicity and meaning is being recalibrated and the composition is really complex and you wonder what the subject matter is. What is the relationship of the subject matter and this frankly not very minimal form at all. But it seems to me that Japan had a salutary, innovative effect on Truett. And I wish she were here to talk about this with. I'd never talked about this with her when I knew her. 
but I think she would say to me, how interesting, you know, maybe Japan wasn't all that bad. You know, that's what I fantasized that she would say. This is a work called Grant. It's from 74. And Truitt made very few horizontal sculptures. She made, I think, three large ones and some small parvas, which you'll see later on. We don't think of her as a horizontal sculptor. Um, we don't think of sculpture as horizontal. Uh, we think of Carl Andre as the person to bring the horizontal field into sculpture. Um, but actually, it's of great interest to several sculptors in the 60s. Anthony Caro, who Truitt, of course, knew well, made some very low sculptures. Uh, Andre, of course, brings it to an extreme. Truitt made horizontal sculptures, and I think they're very interesting. Um, first of all, when you think about Truitt's process, the process of making, once she starts making those columns, She's painting them vertically, but also horizontally. She is laying them horizontally on a table uh, in her studio and painting horizontally at times. So her process is sometimes or often a horizontal making. And I think that's worth thinking about uh, for a work like this. It's as if she's learned from her process. Oh, I'm going to paint horizontally? Well, this is going to affect the form it will affect the shape of my work. Um, the other thing is, if you look at Grant, first of all, you can see it from so many sides, but it's almost as if you can imagine if you're standing at this end, it as a vertical. It is, of course, on the floor, but there's this kind of pictorial sweep to it. Um, it's very, very flat, but yet you can imagine it up. So I think Truett's horizontal sculptures are very interesting and deserve attention. They haven't been written about yet. This work here is called Landfall. And I've seen the drawing for Landfall. And it's very revealing of Truett's process. I spoke about the layers of paint, of course. Um, but she also, at times, thought about, not at times, she always thought about the color in layers. And what I mean is not just the physical layers of color, but just that I would put this color down first and that color down second, that the color was added additionally. The actual shapes of color were added additively. She called the first color she put down the mother color. And perhaps the mother color, we'd have to see the drawing to confirm it, might be the palest uh, of the pale blues. Um, but anyway, she built her color additively, both in terms of the physical layers, but the laying down of different uh, patterns. And you see that particularly in landfall. It looks like a very simple, minimal, you know, rectangular solid, one color, and then the more you look at it, the more intricate its composition is. If you look below, there's lots of pale blues and pale greens. It's a very intricate composition. So she really needed that mother color to, in a way, structure the very intricate composition to start with point one so she could get to point 20. There are so many different layers on that work. You know, in the movie, she talked about value, hue, Mm. And another part of, another quality of color. Saturation. Saturation. Mm. And I was just wondering if you could give an, an example of that when you, as you go through here. Mm. We are going to reserve questions until the Oh, I'm sorry. Please ask that at the end. It's a very important question. And that work actually is about that issue. These are the Arundel paintings. And if you read her book, Daybook, the first of her journals, it begins with a discussion of the exhibition of these paintings at the Baltimore Museum and how critics didn't like these paintings and really thinking about what it is to be an artist, to put your work out for a public and, and what it is for the work to be criticized, the, 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 the questions that artists face when, you put, when they put their work out are very um, movingly discussed in Daybook. 
the Arundel paintings at the time apparently had a rather negative reception. Um, here we see works that are incredibly minimal, um, that bring that idea of minimum uh, to a kind of extreme in her work. There are also paintings, and that's a whole other question that has never been really explored in the literature. True, it's paintings, that she made paintings. Um, she would say sometimes, well, I made them because it was cheaper. That to, she only had a very limited amount of money, and so that to have these wooden armatures made was costly, it was an investment. To simply buy a piece of canvas was less costly. Um, but I think her paintings can be, of course, very interesting indeed. Um, and the Arundel paintings, as I said, here this question of minimum is staged, and also the question of edge, the question of edge. They consist of simple arrangements of pencil lines with a little bit of color, a little bit of white or gray, very, very uh, simple orchestrations of edge. And if you look at a work like this, first of all, you think you're looking at a vertical, a straight geometric vertical, but it's slightly off axis. It's, the angle is slightly off, first of all. Secondly, the white paint is much more densely put down above. And as your eye traces that line down, that white paint sort of disappears. So it's a very subtle uh, exploration of edge visual edge, but also one could say metaphorically, the difference between one side of something and another. Um, I think a work like this really examines. The last two rooms of the show present to us very later works by Truitt. Um, works she was making in her 70s and 80s. She died at 83. And Evensong is her last sculpture. Return in the Middle is a very late sculpture. And here I think we see a beautiful um, posing of that question of minimum and maximum in Truett's work. Questions also of edge and corner and facade. Um, of narrativity, these are works that you really want to walk around. Um, all of the things she was working toward in her early sculpture that I talked about, it seems to me have been very resolved, um, that she's very much in control of her work, um, that she's not as somebody who's sort of slipping in her 70s or 80s, but actually fully in command of her work. These sculptures evoke the very dark palette of the very early sculpture in the first room. I think they do so deliberately. The sculpture on the left and the sculpture in the corner are twining court one and two. They evoke that studio where she made those early sculptures. They evoke that time in her history. Um, one has a maximum degree of uh, complexity in its uh, balancing of a very scarlet red that we recall from Hardcastle against a black. The other is straight black. Twining one and twining two, minimum and maximum together. And then finally these fascinating works that she called pits. And, uh, I remember talking about them with her. She didn't quite know what they were. And isn't that wonderful when you come up with something and you don't quite know what it is? Um, isn't that what an artist does? And she didn't quite know how to exhibit them. Should they be vertical? Should they be horizontal? Should they be at an angle? Uh, this is a question that is being sort of thought about. How should we exhibit these works? Um, are they paintings? Are they sculptures? Certainly her work from the very beginning stages that question as well. Are these uh, sort of three-dimensional paintings? Um, are they painted sculptures? Um, it seems to me these pits 
which um, are sort of place maps, if you will, they're sort of very te textile-y works, um, are very sculptural. Um, the edges are also a concern here. The edges are fraying. She's really using the materiality of the support to make an edge that's rather um, frayed. Um, and they are both works that could be exhibited in, in vertically or horizontally. They have both potentials and could be read in different ways. So I had a question before, which I can end with, and then if anyone else has a question. Um, so who asked the question? It was, could you tell us again well, what it in, is? In the movie, she talked about the color has three aspects, value, hue, and intensity. intensity. And I just wanted, if you could, we didn't totally understand what that meant. If you could illustrate that. It's a great question. So these are the fundamentals of color that every artist is taught. Hue is the color in the spectrum, um, red, orange, yellow. What is the hue, is the color. Uh, intensity is the saturation of the color, how much of that color, how much of that pigment is going to be put in, how intense will that color be. And hue is, excuse me, value is the scale of light to dark, of white to black. That's um, value. So those are three variables of color that Truett is very mindful of in her work. And her work, particularly it seems to me, stages the question of um, hue and value and their proximity. So many of her sculptures, like Landfall, um, the colors are very proximate, they're very close. You feel as if, if she put a little more white in, it would be the next color. Or a little darker, it would be the other color. Um, this is something that she very much finds of interest in the art of Ad Reinhardt. I don't know if you know Reinhardt's paintings, but they were very important for her. Um, she saw them at the Guggenheim Museum right before she made her early sculptures, and his paintings set up very proximate relationships of hue and value where you can barely see the edges between one shape and another. And the very issue of shape is actually rendered unclear. Um, so the whole question of edge is of great interest to Truett, we've said, and I think that her work explores edge by exploring the proximity of value and hue. So it's not just an abstract uh, uh, formal issue for her, these relationships of color but rather one about concerned with meaning and the proximity of hues to evoke meaning. No, she really, for the most part, worked in um, very uh, bright studios with wonderful natural lighting. She might have gone in at night, I don't know about that. Um, but the studios, once she built her studio in Cleveland Park, once she moved there, she had a proper studio situation. She designed it. She added clear story windows um, above. And when she went to Yotto, the artist colony, uh, frequently, she had a studio there with very bright lighting. And you can see those studios in the very fine film that Jem Cohen filmed both in both studios next door. Did she work at night under artificial light? That's an interesting question. Or in her smaller spaces before she got into, you know, a maximum light. I think perhaps that, that, that boarding room <laughs> space uh, where she made those acrylics in 62, yeah, probably it wasn't the most ideal lighting. I don't know. I haven't been to that space. My question uh, is about the grouping in, in the next room there with the bread in the middle and even song in the did she plan that her pieces would be shown ever as a group, or was each one unique? That's a really good question. I think in certain times, she did think of things as a group or as a series. I think the Arundel paintings she exhibited as a series. Um, but I think for the most part, Truett thought about her works as individual things. Um, as these very powerful embodiments of what they were about, and that each sculpture had its own specificity, its own quiddity, it was itself. 
um, a challenge for any curator is how to arrange these things in a way that would be evocative, that would set up relationships between them, which do exist, but also attend to the specificity of each work. So I think in the main, Truett is making individual sculptures, but there are relationships among them. It's a really interesting question because, go ahead. installations, did she install her works, is an issue unto itself. Um, she was a bit passive about installing her works. Her very first show in 63 in New York that put her on the map, she did not install. For many, many reasons, Clement Greenberg and Kenneth Noland and William Rubin, all very powerful guys, were saying, well, this should go here and that should go there. And, it's as if she didn't exist, she remembered. Um, so the question of Truett and installation is a complicated one. The Japanese works in her second show, she was in Japan when that show was installed, so she wasn't even there to install it. So I don't think installation was always her greatest interest, it seems to me. What, the one thing she really cared about greatly in installation was lighting. She really wanted her works to be bright lit, and I found this out when I installed her work. And uh, she said, well, it should be bright lit. And we did install it. And in fact, the works, you couldn't see them without a lot of light. You couldn't see the nuances of Southern Elegy, that tombstone sculpture, without a lot of light. So this installation does, I think, a great deal to honor that desire of Truitt's, that her work should be bright lit. I think that's really important. say anything about the uh, role that the titles played in the creation of the art? Do you know whether she selected titles and that guided her creation, or whether the titles came along after it was complete? I think that's a mysterious question. Um, I think it depended on the work. I know, I know that there were certain instances where the, the sculpture would be complete, and then she would finally know the title. On the other hand, she would describe how she knew what the sculpture would be in advance. She would say that the forms came to her in her mind. She could see the sculpture even before she made it. Whether that what she saw had a title, I don't know. But that's a very interesting and subtle concern. I don't know exactly whether the, whether the title always came after or um, often before. Thank you very much for guiding us through the